0: This is Richard Elfman. Welcome to your Spill Your Ghost podcast!
1: I'm resistant now to change Feeling different can be very strange I am feeling a compelling urge To enact some kind of purge. It's not like me to feel this way It's not like me to feel this way Cruel. Compensation cure Compensation. Living a like it's so easy to take. Because time has no friends, no beginning, no end. No Perpendicular anomalies. Cut my spaces out, my energies. Take my weapon before I forget. I'll do something that we both forget. It's not like me to feel this way. It's not like me to feel this way. It's not like me to feel this way. Cool. Compensation. Cool compensation, dynamite to the intellect, with an NDA, not to resurrect, but to purify, not eliminate, through a mental disorder we struggle to elevate, I'm resistant now to change, feeling different can be strange, I am feeling a compelling urge, to enact some kind of purge, it's not like me to feel this way, it's not like me to feel this way.
2: Hello and welcome to Spill Your Guts. I'm your host, Kevin Lane. This is our 40th episode of Spill Your Guts and the final episode of season two. We'll be taking a few weeks to recharge our batteries and prepare season three. Also, we'll be catching up with some folks and checking out some movies at the amazing Fantasia International Film Festival in Montreal this week and next week. So we'll be taking you along with us. Thanks to my incredibly hardworking team for a fantastic season and to all of you for sitting down with us. Many more guts to be spilled in season three, and once again, we thank you for joining us. Our guest today is one of the genre's great showmen. His films are wacky, funny, boundary-pushing, musically charred, sexual, gruesome, occasionally satirical but never being spirited, but most of all, a hell of a lot of fun. There's no one else like him, and no other films like his. Today we are joined by the hilarious, thoughtful, and wonderful Richard Elfman. Richard is very much an auteur. His 1980 cult classic, Forbidden Zone, is an upside-down, topsy-turvy musical adventure of madness. It's basically impossible to classify this movie. Not really a horror film, nor musical, nor fantasy. It's a Richard Elfman film, and that means you're in for a good time. With masterful scores by his brother and frequent collaborator, the legendary Danny Elfman, Richard has a filmography of impossible to classify movies that all carry his distinct signature as a filmmaker. Richard's films also have a strong DIY quality that speaks to his determination to get his films made the way he wants to make them. I can only imagine a pitch meeting with the studio execs for Aliens, Clowns, and Geeks. What would that be like? Actually, that would probably be awesome. I'd love to be at that meeting. Richard discusses his approach to filmmaking, including the joys of bringing your family and friends on board, his two personas, finding his tribe as the director of the San Francisco transvestite performance group The Cockettes and founding the beloved Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo. As an added bit of awesomeness, Richard has provided us with musical tracks by Danny Elfman, Ego Plum, and Radioactive chicken heads from his new film, Bloody Bridget. Bloody Bridget is an absolute, insane, and utter blast. See it with an audience if you can, and keep an eye out for a kick-ass performance by Richard's wife, Anastasia Elfman, in the titular role. Let's take a trip into the Forbidden Zone with the maestro of madness, Richard Elfman. Hello, Richard. Hiya, boys. And how are you? Doing quite well, thank you. Thank you for uh, for joining me today for this little chat. What are you drinking? I'm drinking some Sailor Jerry and soda. Rum.
0: Johnny Walker Black, a drink I've been partial to since I was 15 years old. A
2: good drink. Good drink. <laughs> I'm am I'm a scotch and whiskey guy myself. I just rum was the closest thing to me physically, so I grabbed it. Uh-huh. Um, but it, it, it seems a good evening to... I mean, I think there's something that goes hand-in-hand hand about your body of work and having a drink in hand, I, th- if, if I may say so.
0: A drink or something stronger.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, you're calling me crazy? No, I think inebriated, <laughs> maybe.
3: We'll get... <laughs>
0: funny like a clown. Oh,
2: God. <laughs> have you, have you ever, have you had people like sort of assume that you're with because of your body of work that you're going to be like, I mean, you are I'm a, a bit of a wacky dude, I think, but do people like come to you and assume you'll be a certain way once they've seen your films because they're so big and crazy and fun. And well, I,
0: I have two personas. Um, most of the month I'm a stay at home, family man, mm-hmm. uh, like to entertain friends. uh, I've spent my life with a, a little bit of uh, people hire me to do real estate investments. Okay. <laughs> so I have a business side and I have a crazy side. Right. Uh, I, I, I mean, other than the God, what was it? Both art related uh, other than um, was it felony grand theft and felony extortion? Both art related. No, I've had a very calm life.
2: Very chill. Yeah, it's funny because you see <laughs> that when you look at your resume, right? It's your films. You're not putting out a movie every year, every two years. Your films have a bit of a gap between them. And I thought about that when I was looking at your filmography. Like, what, what, why, why the gaps between your work? And you know, for some artistic people, that's a choice. For some people, it's development takes a long time, or they're raising money. Like, is was has that always been a choice for you, or have you just been doing other things? Like, why the gaps in your between your projects?
0: I I ran um a- A a large media site for eight years, uh, Buzzing, Print Magazine, Buzzing.com, actually produced 275 videos.
2: Is it no more? Uh,
0: No. It was, uh, CAA had a deal and it was all, all this stuff was happening and we almost made it, Uh, but I wanted to create my own means of production and I didn't quite get, I, I mean, I was behind a desk you know, chasing investors, this and that. And then I just decided, okay, fuck it. I, I want to make movies and let that go. And then I did a, did a fundraiser for Forbidden Zone 2, which I'm planning to do shortly. Did Aliens, Clowns, and Geeks, and uh, just shot another film, Bloody Bridget, that I'm very happy with. Uh, so I'm doing independent features. Um, uh, You know, that's where my heart is.
2: Right. And... Let's kind of uh, let's kind of jump back here to 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 uh, a young little tiny Richard Elfman. Um, Tell me a bit about uh, about your childhood and and where you grew up and your family life. Uh, Tell me a bit about the beginnings of 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 uh, of your love for for theater and and, and art.
0: Okay, I I was uh, it's a long story, but uh, I was born on one hundred and third street in Watts, if you know Los Angeles. And the only other Caucasians on the block were these hillbillies. And the the kids, Dale and Danny, would, I was like three or four years old, would beat me up for killing Christ. Jewish. Didn't even know who <laughs> Christ was. Uh, and then then we moved to Crenshaw, which was a step up. Uh and I I I mostly African American neighborhood. And uh I went to a black high school and somehow I became very athletic when I was around 15 and, uh, I was a state track champion, which didn't hurt at the high school. I wasn't lonely. I wasn't (laughs) lonely. Okay. (laughs) Uh, And, uh, also is I, had a rough couple of years. I had a rough couple of years where I went to the other side And I had another skill. Uh, Some kids can put a basketball through a hoop, hit a baseball with a bat. Uh, I could hit a guy on the chin and make him fall down. I'm not violent. I'm generally the guy to break up a fight. But uh, that was my other skill, which I I, I didn't get into until my mid-late 20s, where I was a sparring partner in a professional boxing stable on and off for 25 years. Uh, so <laughs> an unusual history. Uh, when I was 15 also, I got into Afro-Latin music. I'm a percussionist, an Afro-Latin percussionist. And that was my passion. And uh, God, it's a, I, I got into theater kind of inadvertently and then film, and then I'm still in a band playing Afro-Latin percussion. Mambo Diabolico, which you'll see in Aliens, Clowns, and Geeks, both on the soundtrack and the bands in the end credits. And we're probably going to feature them in Bloody Bridget. We've had to do the score. I'm working that out with my brother, Danny Elfman, who I'm lucky. How many people find their little brother turns out to be Mozart? <laughs> <laughs> and then Ego Plum, who, Ernesto Guerrero, who's the other part of my composing duo.
2: And So when when you were a youngster, did did you and how do you have any other brothers or siblings other than Danny?
0: We have an older half sister, but she didn't live with us.
2: Okay, so were you and Danny close when you were kids? Did you guys do little productions together when you were youngsters, or get into any of that any of that fun when you were kiddos?
0: No, it's funny. Like we're we're four years apart, but as kids, that's a huge gap. You're right, and yeah. We, we, we also went to different high schools. When, when I got out of high school, I, I moved out, lived in different places. Uh, so he went to a different high school. I mean, we got along, but it wasn't until he got out of high school. I was in a French theater company, and he showed up at my doorstep in Paris. And that's when we really became, you know, as adults, became much closer. You know, not as right. big brother, little brother. But it's like like two adults, and then I mean we remain close. You know, we, we couldn't be closer,
2: right? So, did your love of of like did you start doing sort of straight ahead theater? Were you doing Shakespeare and stuff like that, or did you did you start doing your own productions at a young age? Ha ha
0: ha 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 ha. Okay, so I'm the only white guy in this Afro percussion group. Yeah, uh, we get signed by Capitol Records. They send us to Caesar palace to do a lounge thing for a while, while we're putting our album together. Yeah. And by default, I kind of directed the thing. And right. then, uh, at one rehearsal, uh, I, I broke up a fight between a Puerto Rican guy and a guy from New York and then got the show up. And then some guys from Vegas said, Oh, he's a good director. <laughs> so, uh, they owned this thing, it was the Palace Theater in San Francisco, where there was this fabulous group called the Cockettes. And that's C O C K E T T E S, uh, largely transvestite. Mm-hmm. And, and I've got to say, where I grew up in that time period, even though I, there was no racism in my family, but there was a bit of like, call it macho homophobia. Mm-hmm. And so here I am with this largely transvestite group. And that was where I was exposed to Cap Calloway and Betty Boop and all these things. And they would do send-ups of old musicals. And I said, these are my people. And a month later, I was directing them and on stage in a dress. Right. So, (laughs) (laughs) uh, and and then from there, I was invited into, uh, uh, Peter Brook got some money picked up a company that I had met at a festival of underground theater in Toronto, by the way, long story, oh, called nice. the magic circus. And then I was invited to Paris. So the show was a big hit. And then uh, Danny got out of high school, shows up with his violin and our, uh, the violinist was from the Paris opera and he couldn't deviate a note from the score. And the director, Jerome Savary later became the director of the French national theater, Peter Brooke from the Royal Shakespeare company was our executive producer, but he liked, he was in the show and he liked to improvise and Danny could follow him. So Danny got the job and we played together for a summer in France. And then he went on to a year in Africa. I, I stayed in Paris.
2: So you guys were like, how old were you have been then when you, when you went to Paris? 21. 21. Okay. So you, st- you traveled then at a young age, you got to go and, and see different places and perform in different places and when did you start to do things like um? Now you you might have to correct my chronology on this. When did so? When does the whole Oingo Boingo, the the, the group that you and Danny put together, and then the traveling to tour with that? When, when did that? How old were you, and what time frame did that start in?
0: Okay, so I'm in Paris. What two three years? Jerome Savary was brilliant, but but also drunken. He's no longer with us. Uh And I said, I want to start my own group. So I I came back to L.A., started the Mystic Nights, Ah. the Oingo Boingo, kind of a, what do you call, a Comedia dell'arte troupe, mostly music. Got Danny back from Africa as our musical director. Then I've got the Mystic Nights, the Oingo Boingo. At this point, I'm in my mid-late 20s. And then after a number of years, here's this unwieldy 12-person group, and it just, kind of wanted to be a seven or eight person rock group just to be more practical, which was Oingo Boingo. And Forbidden Zone was really my stage show that I did with the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo.
2: Okay. So and Oingo that, Boingo that, that, that was, was, yeah. was basically a variation on the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo, which was a larger sort of a Comedie kind of, kind of setup. up. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And Oingo Boingo was a rock group.
2: Okay. Got it. Got it. Because I know like for some of our listeners who, you know, are younger or whatever, Oingo Boingo is, you know, in the Mystic Nights, you know, you, like, of course, you go back now and you can look, there's, there's great music videos and stuff, but, but it's, the separation of the two is sometimes like when I was reading things, I was like, yes, that wasn't super clear if they weren't the exact same group or what that difference was. Sometimes it's just Oingo Boingo and sometimes it was the Mystic Nights. One was
0: more Comedia dell'arte, but with music. Right. And the other was uh, a rock group.
2: Okay, and so w- were you involved in one at the rock group stage or just in the Commedia D'arte stage?
0: Well, other than helping with some videos, no, it was uh, okay. Danny's thing.
2: Gotcha. Okay, and you directed some of their music videos, right? Yeah. Right, and so at that point, you know, did had you did you do Forbidden Zone uh, after you had already uh, the, the 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 Mystic Knights had kind of transitioned to just doing go, boingo and then is that when you did Forbidden Zone or when did no, that? Come it,
0: was, it, was, it was right around. Just before the transition okay uh it was basically as i wanted to put my stage act just recorded on film right so forbidden zone is kind of what a mystic knights of the oingo boingo show looked and sounded like
2: okay gotcha and tell me like because so for for the listeners on the show who because this is a horror podcast some of our listeners might not be familiar with forbidden zone and they there's a there's a, a brand spanking new transfer. It's a director's cut, isn't it? Coming out on the seventh.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I fixed a couple things that I wasn't able to back in
2: 1980. Got it. So, and yeah, and June 7th, there's a there's a Blu-ray, and it'll be streaming. There's a there's a. And now, is this the color version, the colorized one, or is this the black and white?
0: It's the colorized, which actually is closer to my original vision. Okay. I, I, I intended to uh, colorize. It's it's a hand-tinting thing they did in Paris in the 20s. I wanted to have it done in China or Korea, but I went bankrupt long before the slow boat made it to China, so to speak. <laughs> so it wasn't until years later that I got to colorize the film, but I did it exactly how I wanted it. Uh, and, and there are purists of my fan base, I love them, who are used to the black and white and prefer that, but the color one is actually closer to my vision.
2: Okay. Because when I when I sought out a copy, to to because I'd never seen the film, so my first time seeing it was. So to give our listeners a bit of background, a friend, a mutual friend of of Richard and I's is, is the the great filmmaker and, and awesome Brian Usna. Brian came on Richard and did a long retrospective on his career. We talked to him for like five hours about his entire career, and he got the great. Brian's detail. amazing. Yeah, he's, he's amazing. He's the he's great, and I uh, Brian is such a. uh Kind of a a gentleman filmmaker, too. He's very giving with everything he's learned and stuff. He's he's wonderful that way. But he's the one who said to me, so you like crazy movies? And I said, yeah, yeah, like crazy movies. He goes, you seen Forbidden Zone? No, I don't think so. He said, you got to watch it, watch it. And then let let me then call me and tell me what you think. I said, "Okay, I'll watch it. I'll get back to you. So I watched it and I was like, oh, my God, he hadn't prepared me quite for 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 what it was, which is like for people who haven't seen Forbidden Zone, I think it's kind of almost cool if you don't know a lot about it. It gets to be kind of a, I mean, it was, I'm sure for the, for a lot of people who saw it back in what, 1980 when it came out, it was probably a pretty big surprise, I'm guessing, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it it, it was funny that uh, it played for a summer, disappeared, then it completely went off the market. And then it was, God, maybe like 12 years ago, I put up my first website and I got tens of thousands of hits from all over the world from people that had seen it bootleg
2: right yeah
0: (laughs) but anyway anyway we've got a beautiful blu-ray coming out uh with with super extras on mvd.com David.com.
2: right so tell me a bit about how forbidden zone came together like yeah i've gathered from from some of my preparation for this that did you finance it yourself like did you not raise money you just paid for it with your own with your own dough
0: Mostly me and then, right. um, uh, a childhood friend, Gene Cunningham, who was in the film, who played Bob, uh, helped me finance it. But mostly me, bankrupted me. <laughs> I was gonna say that rarely yeah, works yeah, yeah, out, yeah. doesn't
2: it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, and how some long- people
0: go to film school, I just start shooting.
2: <laughs> yeah, I that's kind of what I did when I, I shot my first film. I took my, my parents at a college fund set aside for me and I kind of pitched one, can I just take this? And go make a movie. And my dad gave this look of, you can, but you shouldn't. And I did it. Oh, good for you. <laughs> yeah, just, uh, drink, drink yeah they're out. not going to, you know, they don't teach you <laughs> out of film school that, you know, if you don't give people food and if craft is lousy, that your crew will walk and be pissed off and you'll deal with grouchiness like they don't teach you that at film school, don't they? I've got to
0: tell you, I'm a grill master and I cook for my cast and crews at the end of every week. I read that so that you're a it,
2: fairly avid grill master,
0: even though I didn't even though I pay them a lot, I'm a serious cook.
2: That sounds, uh, I love, I love to grill. It's, 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 it's one of the best ways to, what do you like? Like, can you give Thomas, me a grill do, tip too or ba- two?
0: Ba- too bad you're not in town Sunday. I'm having Brian over. Oh, are you? And some other directors and filmmakers.
2: That's, uh, I'm well, doing I'll,
0: uh, I'll, a, a, rack of wild boar from Texas.
2: <laughs> next time I'm in LA a fair bit. I'll have to, I'll have to connect with you at some time out there and, Do you have any grill tips for me? Can you give me a tip or two about about how to grill, uh, you know, the perfect steak or something of that nature? Well, I I grill anything
0: that that walks, flies, grows, or swims. But (laughs) I get the best ingredient I can possibly get my hands on and don't overcook it. And I cook on fire and mesquite. And often, I just throw it directly into the coals.
2: Okay.
0: I'll send you some pictures.
2: Don't cook on a gas grill, then. Never. Got it. I was told that by a friend of mine who's a chef. He said, grilling's great. Don't use a gas. grill. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's convenient, that, but it doesn't help. You, with you, you, it.
0: you want that smoke in it.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Um, So Forbidden Zone, uh, how long did you shoot it for? How long did it take to shoot the film? It took a couple
0: of years because I did it in starts and stops. Okay. I actually started as uh, a 16 millimeter film called The Hercules Family. And then it. It was 60 minutes, and then some friends said, boy, make it longer to feature, but we're going to shoot it in the other part of 35 and blow up the 16. So we did that. The 16 wouldn't blow up. Some of the actors went crazy. So I ended up replacing the whole thing. So it was kind of done backwards. Okay. (laughs) Kind of done backwards.
2: And you you shot it over a span of of years, like a few years?
0: Two years, yeah. Yeah, In pieces.
2: I, did you Were you doing, like, weekends or because people had full-time gigs and stuff like that? Was it kind of that sort of shoot?
0: Uh, it was just crazy. It was uh, Hervé <laughs> Vilches from Fantasy Island. Uh, his agent did everything to keep him out of the film because he couldn't get money. Uh, so w- once he realized he couldn't get money, then, oh, you're killing him, you're killing him. He would come on weekends and paint sets, kicked his SAG check back into the production. Oh, wow. Susan Susan Tyrrell, who he was sleeping with at the time, long a lot of history
2: there. <laughs> yeah, we had another filmmaker on the, sh- on the show recently named Sam Irvin, who was talking about some of his uh, anecdotes of, of working with her, Vay Villachez. It sounds like he was an interesting fellow.:
0: He was a prince. He was great.
2: And so how did Susan Tyrell become involved in the film? Did you know her prior, or how did she get involved?
0: Uh, Matthew Bright, who played Squeeze at Henderson, uh, went to high school with my brother. Original Mystic Night of the Oingo Boingo. And by the way, he's a uh, as a writer. He broke Reese Witherspoon in Gun Crazy, which was his script. Oh yeah. And then he broke. No, no, I'm sorry, Drew Barrymore. Yeah. And then Reese Witherspoon. He wrote and directed Freeway.
2: Freeway, yeah. With Oliver right.
0: Stone. Yep. Uh, so he was. Hervé was his roommate, and Hervé was sleeping with Susan.
2: Okay. She's great in the movie. I was watching her and it, it, it recently. She's so much fun. and It's such an all-out performance. Like, I feel like when you're doing a film like Forbidden Zone or something that has farce or or sort of, um, you know, these kind of larger performances, they're not meant to be like the kind of drama performances where things kept, you know, in, and you're trying to keep it small. Like, they're big roles. Do you find when actors are doing that stuff that you have to kind of push them past that thing where actors have been taught in, you know, a lot of the time by their film, their, their sorry, their acting coaches and stuff to keep things sort of internalized and subtle? Like, do, you, do they ever need to push them to make it bigger, which is, you know, the opposite of what they usually get in on film?
0: Well, for not my current films, but Forbidden Zone, I went two ways. Okay. Hervé, Susan, and a few of the other actors classically trained. Mm hmm. Uh, I I just had to give them normal direction. And then I had some non-actors, like the beautiful topless princess, who was like stunning to look at, but not an actor at all. So I didn't encourage her. She could be terrible. And it was funnier.
2: Right. (laughs) Which
0: I don't do in my current films, but that's what I did with like Abraham Lincoln when he was criticized for using drunken Ulysses S. Grant as his general, and he says, "We work with the tools we have." Right. <laughs> and you're, I, I've been fortunate in my subsequent films to have like
2: trained actors. Yeah, right. Which is generally preferable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and Danny's role in, in Forbidden Zone is, of course, a memorable one. How did that sort of character come together? And how did was it? Did you write it for Danny to portray that part?
0: Well, this was. These were things we were doing in the mystery. Oh, the stage show, right? Oingo. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: And was Danny so? Danny did that in the stage show that role.
0: Yeah, yeah, he okay. sang those
2: songs. Got it right. And so, how did the? What was the? Was like was there a a formal script for the for the film that you were following, or was it a lot of improv and stuff based off the stage show that you were doing?
0: No, there there was a script. There, there was. was a
2: script. Yeah. Did you do much improvising? No. No. I think a lot of people think when they see sort of films that are wackier that there's probably a lot of improv. So that's interesting that you didn't do much.
0: No, it was very controlled. All all the sets, all the shots were planned.
2: And when you're directing a film, that's um, you know that that has there's there's a lot of, of craftsmanship in this film from the you know these the, the, all the animation and, and and there's a lot of crazy surrealist sets and stuff like. Um, Were you like intricately involved in all of those elements or did you sort of have department heads that, you know, on a smaller production, I'm guessing you kind of had to be, have your fingers on everything.
0: Well, my ex-wife Frenchie, uh, Marie Pascal Elfman, now Marie Pascal Alain, uh, she's an artist and and all the look of the film is hers. I pretty much gave her, I said, give me kind of cabinet of Dr. Caligari on acid. And, uh, you know, she gave it to me. Right. You know, so she'd act during the day and then paint sets at night and Hervé would come and help her paint sets.
2: (laughs) And what were some of the films that you, when you were young, that that, that sort of might have inspired you for this other than Dr. Calgary? Were were there other movies that you was sort of drawing upon for this project?
0: I'm trying to think. Um, You know, Betty Boop cartoons. Uh, There was a French film, uh, Les Enfants de Paradis, Children of Paradise, had a big effect on me. But other than that, I, I don't know. It's just uh I get inspired, I have crazy ideas. I, I other than a couple homages to Max Fleischer in the film, I, I don't think it was influenced by anybody else.
2: And, and of course, since you know, many years later, Forbidden Zone has been sort of homaged in other films. I I with a very cursory look, I was able to find a SpongeBob SquarePants. Reference to Forbidden Zone. Have you seen that?
0: Okay. That was written by Ego Plum, my best friend.
2: Oh, uh,
0: okay. Ernesto Guerrero, and uh, who's normally at dinner with me and Brian. Right. And he and Danny did the music to Aliens, Clowns, and Geeks, and they're both doing the music to my upcoming Bloody Bridget.
2: Okay. And so he worked on SpongeBob?
0: He does he is SpongeBob. He all their music.
2: Oh, okay. for the last
0: year for the last year has been his. Uh he also does uh God, what is it? Um, Cuphead Show is all his he, he's the top cartoon animation in Hollywood guy.
3: Awesome. In music.
2: That's great. Yeah. Very cool.
0: Which is kind of fucked up because uh he's so busy, him and Danny's so busy. I I, I can't just yell at him. I want it right now. Yeah. It's like, I'm lucky to get it when I get it. (laughs) (laughs) But I, but I have like aliens, clowns and geeks, like the score would normally cost more than the film. Right. The same thing with bloody Bridget.
2: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Right. And
0: and I, and I have wall to wall score in these films, aliens, clowns and geeks is wall to wall music. Bloody Bridget's going to be wall to wall music.
2: Right. So, Forbidden Zone, so you finished the movie and did you do film festivals and stuff with it? Did you like, how did you sort of get the movie out?
0: I didn't. It was, it was released by the Samuel Goldwyn company, played a summer, then disappeared. And I didn't know anything. I had lost control of it, went off the market. And it wasn't until years later that I found out that it had been bootlegged and I had fans all over the world.
2: And when you say you lost control of it, what do you mean? Like, can you tell me about that? Like, how did you lose control of the film? What happened there?
0: Uh, I had some real estate investments. The market crashed. I went bankrupt. Uh, a guy, Carl Borak, a producer, great fellow. I mean, this this is, is good producers, bad producers. Carl Borak is a great producer. Uh, picked up the film, but then he got some financing. I had to sign all rights away to get it finished. Uh, so I got it finished, but I had completely gave up all rights. Okay. I, I wasn't fucked with creatively, though which is not all, you don't say that about all producers, but this guy was a a gem that he didn't fuck with me creatively.
2: So you still got to, the edit that people saw was more or less what you wanted to put out? That that, that was my edit, but
0: I lost all legal control of the film. And I didn't get it back till about 12 years ago.
2: Okay, so was it just a time thing that allowed you to get it back 12 years ago, or how did you serve it? How were you able to retain it again?
0: Brian Usna hooked me up with a producer and then we bought the rights from Carl Borek and his group. Oh, okay. Years later, years later.
2: Very cool. Very cool. That must be nice. That must be pretty sweet to have have it back in your, kind of in your, as your, you know, have your baby back, not have 40, it. Out
0: 40 years later, Yeah, yes.
2: no shit. Oh, yeah. Although it's
0: Forbidden Zone 2 is kind of my bucket list film. Right. Uh, I raised some money um, with a crowd funder. But then just clearing the musical rights cost more than the money I raised. Right. Uh, so this is it, it's going to be my next film or the one after.
2: OK, so you're going to do a Forbidden Zone 2, though. Oh, oh, it's my bucket list. It's my lifetime bucket list film. Awesome. Well, we're going to look forward to that. You'll have to when, when you do, you're going to have to come back and talk about it. Um, so let's only say if what... you,
0: only if you come to a barbecue in Los Angeles first.
2: Done. Easy. <laughs>
0: Yeah I I I I have uh You have Johnny Walker two. you have
2: you've have grilled boar come on we have to twist my arm <laughs> Um let's talk about Shrunken Heads in 94 for for Full Moon. Um we've had some uh some Full Moon folks on the show and there's some love for for some of the, the the sort of classic Full Moon films and Shrunken Heads is a favorite of mine. That was that was a film I was very familiar with. When I remember seeing it, I it came out in 94, that's when I saw it. So I was 12 or 13 when I saw it and I loved how I thought it was pretty crazy, you know, like Meg Foster in, in this sort of, I wasn't sure at the time. I remember when I first saw it; I didn't know if Meg was supposed to be a man, like li- like li- literally just a man. And it was a woman playing a man or if she was supposed to be just like sort of a butch lesbian type of character. Um, well,
0: okay. Okay. Something we just cleared up. She was supposed to be a butch lesbian kind of character. The first day shooting she's got this suit on and she's like a method actress and she's smoking all these cigars and whatever. And it's like a hot place. And she started to pass out and they took the the fat suit off of her and they put it back on. They didn't put enough bosom back in. (laughs) So in the new version that full moon just put out on Blu-ray, I threw in a, a, a subtitle with the name Mary Mo McGillicuddy or something like that you know, in quotes. So you I know saw that, that when I
2: watched it recently and I didn't remember that title ever being it there. It wasn't before.
0: there. I, I put it in to clear that up, but she's not playing a man. She's playing a woman. Right. Okay. She, so, she was great
2: to work with, by the way. Great she's actress. Wonderful in the film and in a lot of films. I've, I've always thought she was great. She was, she did yeah. another, another series for Full Moon called Oblivion that she was great in too. Um, uh, the movie itself has like this wonderful quality. I mean, first of all, it looks like a bigger production than Full Moon was doing at the time. Did you was that something you were aware of that you were getting like that it might have had more, more resources and things than your average Full Moon film?
0: No, that's Richard Elfman. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, all uh, you. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it, it was, uh, you know, I butted heads a few times. It wasn't. Uh, Charlie Band is is tremendously prolific. I was dealing with his ex-wife, with his father. There were a lot of political forces. Uh, I didn't do exactly what I wanted to do. But, uh, you know, it's a fun film. Uh, It's a Matthew Bright script. Uh, But anyway, it's a a fun film. It's a fun film. Uh, Ironically, they wanted to do a theatrical release, so I couldn't have sex or major violence in it. And it still got an R rating.
2: Right, Because kids got killed. So I
0: could have made it much sexier, much gorier. (laughs) By the way, Bloody Bridget is going to be so sexy and so gory. Fucking watch out.
2: I sort of figured by by having Brian and you involved, I kind of had a notion that it might have both uh, sex and violence. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. When does it come out, Bloody Bridget? Well, I'm...
0: (laughs) I'm in post production now. It's uh, it's basically I'm I'm pulling favors from friends, you know, like special effects and visuals. The thing shot, and it came out great. The shoot was great. The shoot Good. was great, but yeah. uh, and and then with my billion-dollar music department, I have to work around, like, how do you compete with uh, Doctor Strange in the multiverse? Yeah. <laughs> okay, Danny, I got to get it. I need it now. I need it now. You know, but the studio's here to get me. You know, but I I mean, it's all coming, but I probably won't have it done till mid end of summer.
2: Okay, and so back to shrunken heads for a second. Like so with shrunken heads like this, that movie has this funny kind of aesthetical quality of being sort of 50s looking, but not totally 50s committed. Like there's still stuff in there like watches they wouldn't have and stuff. It's kind of not literally the 50s. Were you going for kind of a not real time and place? Just something. it,
0: It was written kind of working class East Coast where three generations live within three blocks. Right. You know, that that kind of a story. Yeah. That kind of a story. So it was, you know, there was that little bit of nostalgia, whatever, kind of comic booky,
2: Right. So was this a project that, like, because a lot of the the films that Charlie Band did through Full Moon sort of started as a poster or something, and he would assign a filmmaker, a filmmaker would come in, he'd say, you want to do this. How did Strung and Heads become a project that you wanted to do?
0: Same thing. Charlie came up with a poster, three flying shrunken heads. Hired Matthew as a director. I mean, hired Matthew as a writer. Pulled me in as a director. Okay, it, it was it was Charlie's concept, you know, based on this poster that he had of three flying shrunken
2: heads. So, did Matthew Bright sort of say to Charlie, "You should you should talk to Richard Elfman," or how did how did it's like because you know Matthew knew, knew each other quite well at that point?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Matthew mentioned me.
2: Okay, got it. And do you remember when you first read the script, like what was different about it than the version of the film that people will see now if they watch it?
0: Well, we had to take less sex and gore. Right. So it was it was oh, quite oh, a bit oh, gorier. Although oh, oh, oh. it c- could have been could have been
2: because like in in the version now, like, for example, you know, when the kids get killed, like, you know, we, we see the guys pull up and they shoot them, and the kids react and and then they get, you know, kind of. You, you don't
0: you, you don't see their guts blowing apart.
2: Would you have shown it if you could have? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a feeling you probably would have gone to town more though on the killings of the gangsters that kill the kids. You probably you probably might have done a little more with those deaths, right? They're pretty fun as is, but they, maybe they wouldn't gory or something if you could have.
0: Well, well, here's a story. Okay, my son Bodie Elfman, uh, his wife Jenna Elfman, Dharma from Dharma and Greg.
2: Yeah. Uh,
0: Co-star in Fear of the Walking Dead. But anyway, he's got like about 150 IMDb credits. People don't realize what a trained actor he is. Uh, Major TV shows. Uh, You've got to see him in Aliens, Clowns, and Geeks. The guy just rocks, rocks. So he's one of my gangster kids, Booger Martin. And so when he's turned into a zombie, there's this thing where he has to open his mouth and like worms come out of it. Yeah. So so we're shooting it, and we put a thing called like a dental dam in with like you know rubber or whatever, and he's got the worms in, and the worms work their way out and they're getting into his mouth, <laughs> and Bodhi's so samurai, he does the take with the worms coming out of his mouth. I get the cut, and then I he runs into the bathroom and throws up, and then the DP says, "Okay, we've got to get another take." <laughs> oh no. No complaints, yeah. No complaints.
2: Proper trooper. (laughs) The cast is very fun and striking. It's the actor who plays, uh, as the the sort of the the shopkeeper. Uh, what's his name? Sumar Sumatra. Sumatra, is that his name?
0: Yeah, yeah, Pierre Aristide Lafitte Sumatra.
2: Yeah, uh, what's that? Uh, What's the actor's name? Julian Harris, is that his name?
0: Julian Harris playing a a retired member of, of. Duvalier's Tonton Makut, that notorious secret police in Haiti. Is that a real he used thing? Voodoo. Oh yeah. yeah. That's, Tonton that's...
2: and how did he get involved? Is he someone that you guys that someone from casting said, Hey, what about Julian Harris? Was he an actor you were familiar with? Because he had done Bond films or something, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. He was great. He was great to work with. Yeah. No he's no longer that... with us. But but the, the the guy's the real thing.
2: Yeah, he's fantastic. I mean, and, and the kids are really fun in the movie too. It's kinda, you know, it's The movie has this fun quality of sort of being kind of a kid's adventure picture, like something that you'd see from Amblin Entertainment, like one of those Goonies-type movies. But then it's just a little crazier than one of those films. Well, it's
0: like a Walt Disney film for the first third until the bad kids kill all the good kids. (laughs)
2: Yeah. (laughs) Once the kids all get shot, it sort of changes.
3: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah.
0: the only thing is uh, Mr. Voodoo Sumatra cuts off their heads and reanimates them. and. The only problem is Tommy's still in love with Sally.
2: Yeah. Yeah, like, I like the bit when he like flies Sally, up her. Shirt. Sally. Yeah. Please embrace me. But Tommy, how
0: can we do that? I will show you. And he muzzles himself between her bosoms.
2: <laughs> yeah. It's, I love very that bit. Very it's, it's very poignant. Yeah, a very poignant. Yeah. Very kind of like this little shrunken head just sort of nestled in between her boobs. Yeah. Just yeah, lovely. Um, I was curious too. I was watching there was like a making of thing on the Blu-ray that I watched. And they showed them making all the sculpts for like the little versions of the kids' heads. And then there's one shot where it shows them making sculpts of. And she said, "Well, this is when we see their severed heads when they're like the normal size." But I don't. We don't really see that in the movie. Was there a shot taken out or something where we saw Julian Harris's character cut their heads off or have their heads?
0: I'd have to see the film again. <laughs> okay.
2: <in a> <laughs> yeah. There's. It, it, I wondered if something got taken out or something. You know, it's one of those things where you're like, I don't remember seeing those heads. Um. And there's also like this great stuff of showing. I think it was motion control stuff where is that how the heads were done when they're flying around the town? That was all miniatures and stuff.
0: Uh, it, it, miniatures and, and CGI against blue screen. Right. Which again was pretty sophisticated
2: for, for full moon budgets at the time. Like, uh, had, a guy
0: named Roger Nall. Cool guy. Still cooking in the business. Very cool guy. Roger Nall.
2: And so. As matter when fact, I should give him a call. Yeah. Bring him to a barbecue. Yeah. Um, were you happy with the finished movie? Uh, well, it was okay. To be honest,
0: it was, uh, it wasn't exactly what I would have done if I had all the elements at my control. At one point I was sent to Romania to shoot it. Uh, Long story. Uh, but you, you know, it's a fun little film.
2: Did you shoot it on a back lot?
0: At Paramount Studios.
2: Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah, it looked like backlot stuff. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's fun. Had you shot on a backlot before? No. Did you like shooting on a backlot? Very much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's cool when you, like, it gives you a, probably a hell of a lot more control, right? Than when you shoot on location. Yeah.
0: Although Forbidden Zone 2, the whole thing's going to be against green screen.
2: Oh, the whole project? Except
0: for, except for sets done, it'll, it'll all be shot in a studio.
2: Oh, cool! Very cool. Um, so after Shrunken Heads, you went on to do in '98 Modern Vampires, um, uh, which it, correct if I'm wrong, but wasn't that a project originally that Oliver Stone was attached to as a producer?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he produced Freeway with Matthew Brights, Matthew Bright. So Oliver Stone and Matthew called me, showed me the script. It was great. We're doing it. And um, the other producers, uh, Chris Hanley, Brad Wyman, both very cool guys. Somehow there was some falling out with Oliver over money. I don't know what it was. And then he dropped out and uh, wasn't there for the finished film.
2: So did he drop out during pre-production or at what point did he drop for, out? Pre-production. Pre-production, okay. okay.
0: Well, not dropped out. It was just, I, I, I don't even know what happened. Uh, he was a good guy uh, Hanley and Wyman were good guys. And I, I somehow they didn't get along and Oliver wasn't there at the finish line.
2: Right. Um, I could have used them. Yeah. <laughs> he seems like a good guy to have in your corner. He knows his stuff. Yeah. yeah
0: a very cool guy.
2: Yeah. Um, so how did you get involved with the project then? Like, did did Matthew Bright bring you the script? Was it through Matthew Bright again? I don't know. He and
0: Oliver called me and you want to direct it? Sure. <laughs>
2: there you go. <laughs> That's a good way to get a project. Um, and when you first were attached to the project, and I guess all the way throughout production, it, at some point it got changed, but the original title was The Revenant, right?
0: Yeah, and it was changed to Modern Vampires.
2: Okay. Did you like the 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 Modern Vampires title, or did you prefer The Revenant?
0: I'm Good with either one.
2: Right, okay.
0: Um, this was something, I was a director, and I didn't have producerial control. Right. So, so I was more of a hired gun. Okay. And I'd call this more of Matthew Bright's vision than Richard Elfman's vision.
2: Okay, gotcha. And, you know, I, I revisited the film uh, to talk with you today. And you know what I noticed about this movie that I think, I, like, is is some people... Casper Van Dien is an actor so associated with, like, being sort of an action guy and stuff like that. But I think he's a really underrated actor. Like, he's always so committed and present in his stuff. And again, Casper in Rare was a,
0: Casper was a prince. Yeah, he's and, great. Uh, and, and he's got a... a Comedic nuance, kind of like Cary Grant, right? Uh, And and I just loved working with. He was just so good to work with, wonderful to all the other cast. Did his own stunts, got injured, didn't complain. He didn't even know it. Right. Uh, (laughs) But but uh, along with his dramatic timing, he has a comic sense. Right. You know, along with being like this real good hunk of a good-looking guy. Yeah. He's got this Cary Grant comic sense, and, yeah. and uh, I had an amazing cast on that film. God, I had sure did. Rod Steiger. I had Kim Cattrall. I had Craig Ferguson, Natasha Leone. Yeah, Udo Kier. N- not bad. U- uh, oh yeah, Udo Kier. One of my all-time favorite films is Andy Warhol's Dracula. Yeah, Blood of Dracula. Yeah, and uh, when I-, I told Udo, Sir, I've been waiting uh, twenty years to stake you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Udo is great. Udo is great.
2: Isn't he a character? I've met Udo a few times at different things. And he's 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 a really funny, fun person. He's great to work with. Right. Yeah. Great to work I with. Bet. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that I, definitely one of the things I noticed reading up on the film, too, is when you look at the reviews, Rod Steyer got a lot of really good notices for the film. Um, And he kind of steals a lot of his scenes. He really he really you know, gave this movie his all, which is. You know, you look at some of the films around that time, Rod and I think he was getting, you know, he was getting older and might have been harder to kind of, but he gives this movie as kind of his all. Were you, like, did you guys get on well in the shoot? Did you enjoy working with him?
0: Well, it's a, a bit of a story, bit of a story. Okay, so uh, he wanted the part. There was another actor. This was at the time when Oliver Stone was attached to it, wanted it. He had had a heart attack, surgery, couldn't get insurance put up his own bond for it. Uh and our first day shooting. Okay. So, okay, so I had a very short shooting schedule. Ridiculous. Sixteen days all, I read.
2: Pardon me? Sixteen days is what I read. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was like insane. That's and, and, nuts, uh, yeah. So I I, okay, Mr. Steiger, we're going to start here and then do these lines here and then finish the scene here. Well, I haven't blocked it out yet. Well, sir, we had to prehang the lights and work everything out, but I haven't blocked it out yet. But sir, we 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 can't. I mean, this is kind of how we have to do it. And then he blows up, and not just blows up. This isn't any guy blowing up. This is this humongous, soul, charismatic. Rod Steiger, powerful force blowing up. <laughs> it is odd. Never treated actors this way. What the fuck do you know? What the fuck do you know? And the crew's cowering. Wow. Okay. So I back down, let him waste an hour, move two lights, and instead of going <clears throat> from A to B to C, we kind of banana around and I, I can't afford to lose that much time, call his agent. And I said, okay, it ain't going to happen anymore. Okay, so the next time uh, I demand that he do it my way, he does a perfect part, storms off going like Yuli Kazan never treated actors this way, then calls me three in the morning crying, was I believable? Yes, Mr. Steiger, you are believable. Uh, So what I realized was every three days, he would just have an emotional blow up. I'm a boxer. uh, I'm a stage (laughs) director. You know, so I'd let him blow up. And then, uh, okay, thank you, Mr. Steiger. Could we take our place, please? And then he'd give me Rod Steiger. Right. And I've got to say, he was wonderful. Like like with uh, some of the younger cast members, you know, the gangsters who all had various degrees of acting experience. He'd read lines with them. He was wonderful, but I and, and it, it won me the respect of the crew because they were terrified, and and I just realized, okay, this is how it how, how he ticks. But you know, I was blessed to have Rod Steiger.
2: He's wonderful in the film. He's really good. It's a great performance. It's like it's fun to see him, you know, in the latter part of his career, and he gets he's he really looks like he was he was committed to it, which is great. Um, you know, and I think sometimes you know, as a director. For myself, when I've had the opportunity to work with great actors or, you know, esteemed or well-known actors, there often is some bit of baggage you're going to work through or something you're going to you know, to figure out how they function and how they take. And that's sort of part of the job of the director. Right. I mean, um, did you find with with Steiger once you kind of pinned down sort of that what his process was that he needed these blow ups, once you kind of knew that that was that it kind of just you went, OK, now I know how to move on and you could just sort of put that down and keep going. Was it sort of that way?
0: Yeah, I mean, I once stopped someone from shooting writer Matthew Bright, with a gun in my face. It wasn't that bad, <laughs> <laughs> you know, So it was, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. It was just like, okay, this is how the guy ticks, right? And you know, it's it's all good. Yeah, and I'm I'm blessed to have him, right? I, you know, this. I mean, working for SAG minimum, putting up his own medical bond. I'm blessed to have the guy, right. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, another time. Like, God, God, I asked him to do it. Can we do it again faster? Then he, it, it's It's so theatrical. It's performing for the crew. Faster. Faster. Because wow. I've never asked me to go faster. Wow. It, you, know, <laughs> it, you know, so he didn't do it faster, and we made him faster in editing. Right.
2: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, the film, too, is kind of a... <laughs> <laughs> I love that idea that you're like, okay, fine. And we'll just fix that. later. Um, the film too, is like a little bit more, it, it's probably of your body, the closest and it's not, but the closest to sort of a straight ahead horror picture, right? It's vampires and like, you know, it's still not going for the scares per se, but it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's a little, cause it's certainly more so than your other work. Did you ever want to do like a straight ahead horror film, like a scary horror movie?
0: I have my own style. You'll see it in Bloody Bridget. And Bloody Bridget is really gory, but it's uh, absurd, comedic horror. Right. Uh, Scary, I leave to James Wan. Right, yeah. Uh, I I have my own Richard Elfman absurdist horror. Right. Which is bloody and gory, but it's, it's more of a humorous, absurdist, dark horror comedy.
2: Do you like uh, horror films that are that are scary? I, I love
0: them. That's right. my favorite thing. My wife and I crave particularly supernatural horror.
2: What are some of your favorites?
0: Oh, Conjuring. Y- you know.
2: <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> um, well, let, let's talk about uh, Aliens, Clowns and Geeks. So. Which I had a blast watching. Uh, I had a few drinks. And just kind of, after having seen Forbidden Zone, I had, this is the closest I felt to Forbidden Zone territory of of your work that we've seen since that film. Do you think that's fair to say?
0: Yeah, yeah. Modern Vampire, Shrunken Heads, I was a hired gun. Right. Aliens and Clowns and Geeks was purely my writing, my directing.
2: Right. As is
0: Bloody Bridget.
2: Right, okay. So... For Aliens, Clowns, and Geeks, like how did that, how'd the project sort of come together? Did you piece it together similar to Forbidden Zone? Was it totally your baby in that regard?
0: Went up in my little rooftop garret to send you a picture. Uh, uh, okay, I, I don't live in a palace, but there's an interesting history. It's a hundred-year-old house up in the Hollywood Hills. And John Lennon spent a uh, summer here when he ran away with May Pang from uh, Yogo Ono. It's another story. <laughs> uh, but uh so there's a little garret on the rooftop where John wrote some music. Okay, what did I have? Uh, a case of Scotch, a box of cigars. I wrote it in three weeks. Right. Uh
2: and was it a, was was it a concept you had sort of been kicking around for a while that, that you or did you just sit down and just sort of let it come out? Let it come out. Yeah. Yeah, I remember I remember seeing an interview with Stephen King once where there was a, an act or a uh, an interviewer who asked him. You know, when he writes, does he have notes and has he sort of pre planned? And he said, No, I can't do it like that. I just have to kind of sit there and just stuff starts coming through my fingers and I just go. Is that sort of how your process is when you're writing?
0: Well, here's a little bit about my and Danny's background. Our parents were both school teachers. Well, my father eventually became a school teacher. Then my mother became an English teacher. And post age 50, she published 16 novels and got two Emmys. So you might have said our religion was not so much secular Judaism, but character development and story structure. So I've got those, I can do like a classic three-act story structure, like falling off a log. So even though there's craziness, it's kind of like I was brought up with this not from college, but just growing up with a a certain sense of story and writing. Uh, But anyway, you know, it's a, you know, God, I've got this poor actor, Eddie Pine. He's got this series, Crimey Dry. The network cancels it. He meets some motorcycle clown that attacks him. These girls pick him up. He falls into another universe and he wakes up. With the key to the universe stuck up his ass, very as you poignant. do, as you do, very, very poignant. Uh, yep. which, which brings them into an intergalactic conflict between the clowns and the aliens.
2: It sounds like the experience a lot of people have when they first moved to Los Angeles. It's Something similar oh, yeah. to that. Yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I remember when I first when I when I first moved from from I was living in a, t- in a town called Mississauga, which is a suburb of Toronto in in, in Canada, in, in Ontario, Canada. And I moved to L.A., you know, to pursue the filmmaker thing. And, um, you know, there was just stuff I had never seen before that I witnessed in my first year in L.A. that I just never saw in Toronto. Uh, L.A., you know, Hol- Hollywood is a crazy place. And I was thinking watching this film that it felt like kind of a it's a love letter to that. It's a condemnation of that. There's sort of a love hate thing for the whole Hollywood thing in this movie. What? I have a love
0: hate thing with Hollywood? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Through the head of a studio? Into a pool at a black tie party? Me?
2: Tell yeah, okay. You gotta tell that story. Tell that tell can you you can tell that story, right? Uh okay, so I do a lot
0: of live events, live theater. Uh I've got this event. I've got the creme de la creme of the studios, and I'm a Afro-Latin percussionist. I've got these Brazilian percussionists doing amazing music. People are drunk, it's the full moon. And if you've ever seen The Player with Tim Robbins, it's based on this like kind of like horrible studio head that'll kill anybody, stab anyone in the back to get their position. So it was based on a real guy, and he's at the party. He's walking with his bimbo past my beautiful Brazilian musicians. He makes a denigrating comment about, oh, why could they get some real music? It hurt these guys. It hurt these guys. So I picked the little fuck up and threw him in the pool. And (laughs) people were shocked because this was the most powerful man in Hollywood.
2: Right. And to
0: see him struggling, scrambling, trying to get out of the pool, the wet tuxedo, and people hated him, but they couldn't see it. Well, it didn't hurt my... Anyway, so uh, uh, I went back to the Brazilians and apologized for his boorish behavior.
2: So did you just see red Were you just did like this fucking guy and you just grabbed him or were you like, were you in control when you did that?
0: No, like Dracula, tried to put me into the power under his power. You know, like I'll never yeah. work in this town again. He's dying of lung disease, you know, almost worked, but I'm Richard Elfman. He went to the pool. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's great. Um, what sounds like the asshole had he come? Hmm. It sounds like the asshole had it coming. He had it coming. Yeah, that's good. That's a that's a great story. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you see the fuck trying
0: to get out of the pool. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> all wet in his tuxedo. And the shock on people's faces. Oh, but man. the secret glee in their faces. Yeah, because
2: there's so many people there that probably wanted to do that to that guy.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's... a. Uh, as harvey weinstein rots behind bars <laughs> yeah
2: exactly yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly i'm looking forward to seeing bloody Bre- uh bloody bridget that sounds great yeah.
1: so carefree. So what is it that brings you before me? Oh, Dark Lord, who's from below? You married me to bridge it. It's been quite the show. She now pretends to have married another. A pile of shit that I cannot wait to smother.
0: Well, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about it. Okay. Do you know much about Rastafarians? A little bit. Okay, in... Tefari was the name of Haile Selassie, the former emperor of Ethiopia during the twenties and the thirties. Ross is king. They adopted him and deified him in Jamaica, and those are called Rastafarians. Rastafari. Okay. There's a similar thing in Haiti. Baron Samadai, the god of life and death, tall, handsome, charismatic, top hat, cigar. Rum and ladies, right, and in Haiti, his wife is St Bridget of Ireland, who's based on a Celtic goddess Bridget of Ireland, Caucasian red hair. So if you go to Haiti in their pantheon of Voodoo deities, the only Caucasian deity is the red-haired goddess Bridget from Ireland. Baron Samadai hasn't seen. Bridget in 90 years. She's been off on some adventure. He mistakes a red-haired burlesque dancer at a dive bar in Van Nuys, California, for Bridget. <laughs> and, and he turns her into a Valentine vampire. Well, what's that? Oh, you shall see. Sucking blood only whets her appetite. She must eat the beating hearts of her victims. And Bridget is the protector of women. She's the sword of justice. So they all deserve it.
2: So it's all like, you know, like shitty, like creep, creep guys that she's going after.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it.
2: Yeah. So she's kind of like an anti-hero type of character?
0: Yeah, she's the sword of justice. Love it. That's great. <laughs> but it's, uh, I've got great scenes of the victims. Roy so soda effects did our practical effects. Where the chest is ripped open, you can see the beating heart. The person looking down, ah, as she eats and rips his heart out. That's great.
2: <laughs> so it's 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 very it's, subtle. It's a like a yeah. It's is it like a horror <laughs> comedy? Would you say?
0: Yeah, right. dark comedy.
2: Okay. Who's in the film?
0: So Bloody Bridget stars my wife Anastasia Elfman, who's got a big following. She's a screen queen. Uh, Look her up on IMDb. But also a classically trained ballet dancer, cellist, which you'll see in the film, uh, Stella Adler. Uh, (laughs) I made her hair red. Mm -hmm. Uh, She knocked it out of the park. We've got a Jean-Claude, a New York Haitian actor, playing Baron Samadai, Denise Milford. Uh, the priestess Mambo Matilde, she's from Haiti. Marcos Mateo Ochoa plays Pepe.
2: He was in uh, Clowns, Freaks and Geeks, right? Or uh, Clowns and Geeks. Yeah, he's
0: he's great. He's uh, Anastasia's dance partner, but he's a great actor. Right. Uh, brilliant guy. Really, he's actually a, a, a stock analyst. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tom Ayers, comedian, huge. Acting background played our smarmy club owner Tony. God, I've got Daniel Dershowitz and Daniel Dershowitz Jr., two brilliant little people comedian. Uh, God, I've got I'm blanking out with names.
2: And did, did uh, Danny come back in for and 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 do the score for this one? And your and your partner Ego?
0: He and Ego were doing the score, although I had to play the fucking devil. Danny who was doing
2: Coachella. Oh, okay. (laughs) So had you wanted Danny to play that part?
0: Yeah, although I'm, I guess I'm okay with him helping with the music.
2: That's all right. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, if you have to settle. Um, So when I, watching Alien, Clowns, and Geeks, like there's some pretty, it's fun too watching the film because Bodhi, your son, is the lead. He's great in the movie. As you said, he has a long resume of great work and, but he he finds this the perfect balance of the physical comedy and playing the right gags, but also brings grounding the scenes in the right moment. I thought Buddy was fantastic in the film. What's it like directing your kid?
0: Okay, it's a problem <laughs> because I have to not laugh off camera <laughs> when he's acting. Right. So sometimes my guts were aching. Uh, <laughs> like when they were doing this thing and trying to put the thing in his ass to test. <laughs> The electrodes, yeah,
2: <laughs> and
0: yeah. he's reading an acting scene. But uh, no, I love working with Bodie. Uh We're going to be working again on the future films.
2: And you know, you're wa- I'm watching scenes like there's the one where he has like a sex scene, and wasn't that your wife in the same scene? <laughs> what, no, there... no,
0: no, no that that was Rebecca Forsyth.
2: Who? So who's the other oh, actress wait, wait, in the wait, scene? Wait,
0: wait, which film are you talking about?
2: And and uh, at the beginning of Aliens, Clowns and Geese, when he first gets. He goes, meets those like two women at the, on the, on the road. Okay. Okay.
0: Yes. My wife's one of them, (laughs) but they they really weren't, there was like major protection going on. (laughs) Right. I was like, that must have been so
2: weird for you to shoot that. (laughs) Well,
0: Well, you you know, it, it, it it seemingly was, but they're both professional. Right. And, and there was so much, I I mean, they they weren't naked down below. They, They had clothes on and huge paddings and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was like a you know, like two dancers on a dance floor. Right.
2: Yeah. 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 Part of the job. <laughs> um so there's all kinds of and there's French Stewart is so funny in the movie. He cracked me up.
0: He's French is amazing.
2: Yeah. I love him. He is amazing. Films. Yeah. He was he I mean, he's the third and the rock
0: of the sun. That, this is French Stewart.
2: Yeah, I, which I he was, was a, also an amazing stage actor, by the way. And does some great, like dramatic work in, in film as well. He did. Uh, I think it was amazing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He did a, a horror movie or thriller kind of horror. Movie. I think uh, David Lynch's daughter directed it some years mm-hmm. ago. I can't remember the name of it now. And he was fantastic in that. But I loved how committed he like. He really he got he looked like stuck with that accent. Like a lot of the other actors are pretty loose with the accents they're doing. But French really goes for it. With the accent. Professor
0: von Scheisenberg. Yeah. He was so
2: funny. And no, like I am talking the big time. Yeah. I love this <laughs> scene where he's in the woods and he's kind of panicking and he goes, oh, oh I'm scutting myself. Like that was, <laughs> that cracked me up. Uh, how did he become involved with the picture? Did you know him beforehand or? There's a,
0: a theater company called Sacred Fools that did a stage version of uh, Forbidden Zone. And he's a member of their troupe. They did a thing on, um, God, his wife wrote it on Buster Keaton. I forgot the name. It was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. So we became friends through that. And I asked him, and he said, sure.
2: Yeah, he was He was a blast in it. Um, I love that bit that Bodhi does, too, where uh, when he's talking to the cop, and all of a sudden he starts doing Macbeth, and he kind of goes, gives a face, and he walks off. <laughs> and the cop goes, fucking actors. Which is something <laughs> so many people who have been in Los Angeles have thought at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bodie nailed it. Yeah, that was great. And it was Vern Troyer's last film.
0: Yeah, he was, he was great to work with.
2: And did he, was, did he pass after the film was done or when did he pass away and register to the production?
0: Uh, after the film
2: was done. Okay, so he got to give his whole performance. So oh, that's good. Yeah, um, yeah. Had you seen the film Killer Clowns from Outer Space before you did this movie? Yes. Did any inspiration there? Were you a fan of that movie or anything?
0: I love Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Uh, It's not really the same. Right. But I'm a big fan of Killer Clowns. I I, I know the Chioto brothers uh, love them.
2: Yeah, they're fantastic. I know
0: Don Mancini did the score. I, I've seen that film like three, four times.
2: Right, because yeah, it's like I love that film. This—that's what this is—and watching that. This—some this, of the scenes of the clowns in the space ship and stuff. It's—you it, know—it definitely kind of made me think. Uh, it's a very different movie, but I definitely thought of some of the imagery of killer clowns. Which um, we definitely
0: have killer clowns. You do. We definitely have some killer and aliens clowns.
2: and a woman yeah. shooting ping pong balls out of her vagina and. Um, there's a lot a, a guy in a chicken suit um George went
0: yeah George, George went from cheers, yeah, yeah I, got, I got a good cast on this great,
2: great cast. George was
0: great. you ever played a priest, no, you want to play a priest, sure
2: <laughs> <laughs> did he only do like one day or something because he's just in that one sequence
0: yeah, yeah just but uh, it was a great scene,
2: yeah, it was poignant and when I... he when
0: he, deal, when he deals with uh the little person and the giant chicken. Who, the actor who played the giant, the giant chicken.
2: Chi- chicken was that the same actor who plays the the the, the, the sort of trans brother?
0: Yes, okay. G. Steve G. Steve A. G.
2: He was he's great.
0: A, he's on a big TV show right
2: now. He's a bit of a scene steward in the movie. He has some really his energy is very fun. He's sort of kind of laconic, just sort of what I don't give a fuck. Kind of it's a fun performance. He's a brilliant comedian. Yeah, I loved. I liked too that you know, in a film that sort of takes shots and has fun with a lot of different things. But I never felt like you ever at any point made fun of the fact that that character is sort of a trans character. That you know, the character's um, sort of. I think they they said he just transitioned at the at the start. There's a point in the film where they talk about that he had just transitioned. I thought it was kind of sweet and sensitive that that was never the brunt of a joke in the movie.
0: No, not at all. And and the the brother. Eddie had a problem with it, but then reconciles at the end of the movie.
2: Right, yeah. But Which I thought... won't
0: tell you the ending. I won't tell you the ending.
2: So, were you happy with the with the finished movie?
0: Love it. Really pleased.
2: And how with, did you uh, sort of work with with Ego and Danny on the score? Where you in, like, did you just give them the film and they threw it all together, or were you like in there with them working through the beats and figuring out how to score this thing? Well, I,
0: I'm involved, but they they both, um, you know, I give them notes, but they're both brilliant. My brother's brilliant. ego's brilliant. The, the only problem with ego is is he he's doing like three big shows right now. Uh SpongeBob, what is it, Cupheads, got one other. Mm-hmm. And, and so they're busy all the time with these highly paid gigs. Uh, yeah, I hate that. <laughs> no, <I'm> just, I, <laughs>
2: Stop what you're doing and do my film. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. No, no, it's all good. I'm, I'm blessed to have these guys doing my scores. Like, how does wall what, to wall music? Wall yeah, wall there's music. so much
2: music in this film. I would say it's like 90% of the movie has score going on at some point.
0: Um, A- 86 minute movie, 76 minute score.
2: So, my my percentage is pretty on point. Yeah, like um, 95%,
0: yeah, yeah.
2: Um, does, does it what like because you? Danny has, has done some, at least a main title theme or something for all of your films, right? He's contributed to everything you've done. Yeah. Have you guys sort of over time developed a, like a total shorthand now? Does he just send you something kind of knowing what you're going to like?
0: Yeah. And I'll, I'll give him a note and then he'll give me a a, a final and then we're done. Right. And he knows how he thinks. Yeah. And uh, if you look at the playlists of what we both listen to, it's almost the same. Right. Like in terms of her musical tastes, musical background,
2: right? So when you like when you're watching, you know, one of the other films that Danny has has scored, do you ever go, "Oh, that's that," you know, person we listened to when we were kids, or something like that? Do you do you see some of the influences of music, musical influences that you guys share in in, in his other work? Uh, he wasn't
0: into music as a kid.
2: Oh, okay, really?
0: No bands, no background, no record collection. Didn't go to concerts. I, I don't know if you believe in past lives, huh. but he's like 15, and we get him a guitar, and a month later, he could pick out a Django Reinhardt solo. Wow. For those of you that don't know Rango, Django Reinhardt, look at Sean Penn and Sweet and Low Down, which is based on Django Reinhardt. But he was the most amazing jazz guitarist in the 30s, 40s, and the 50s. Got him a violin a month later. He could do the Step and Grappelli accompaniment. And that's how we aced out the violinist from the Paris Opera in my French company to get the gig for our summer tour. Wow, that's neat. So it's kind of unreal.
2: He's just one of those people because he's, you know, he's so, he seems like music is just so part of his DNA. I pictured him as like a kid, you know, sitting there listening to records and, you know.
0: No, wow, it it was like a, a past life thing.
2: That's very cool.
0: So I'm not, yeah, yeah. I'm not trying to get mystical on you. No, I get you. uh, It was like pretty unusual.
2: That's crazy. But were you a musical, a music kid? Like, did you listen to a lot of records and albums and stuff?
0: No, mostly classical music in the house. Okay. Uh, I had another experience when I was about 15 where I could suddenly play Afro Latin music professionally. I was in the union two years later. But I, uh, it's another story I won't go into.
2: I saw you that you, uh, when I was preparing to talk with you today, one of your first credits on IMDb is for George of the Jungle. What did you do in George of the Jungle?
0: Uh, a buddy of mine, Steve Boy, a major director. He does uh, dark sales, all this stuff. Yeah. He he used to be the top stuntman in Hollywood. Okay. And he and I ran together, raised hell. I, I, I do light stunts. He would go off skyscrapers uh god that what was that tom cruise film days of thunder he did the car crash okay uh so he was doing second unit and he needed me to show brendan fraser how to play drums so that that's how i was in it and i, I did some lines with brendan fraser but it was i i was brought in to show brendan fraser how to play percussion instruments did he learn well, enough for the scene. He's right. great, <laughs>
2: yeah. by the way. He's great. Yeah. Enough, to get, guy. Enough, to, enough to fake Yeah, it. yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> so uh, you've talked a bit about Bloody Bridget, and you've talked about aliens and clouds and geeks. What else What else have you got coming down the pipe? What else are you working on?
0: Well, Bloody Bridget 2 and Forbidden Zone 2. Oh, you're already doing a Bloody Bridget 2? Writing it. Oh, cool. And Forbidden Zone two's all ready to go. I just need a little more money.
2: Right. And you're are you, you finished the crowdfunding for that? Uh, I, I've got to raise a little bit more. Okay. If you if you get another crowdfunding campaign or something, let me know and we can put it on the show notes so that people can... Uh...
0: Sure, thank you. Yeah,
2: thank of you. course. Yeah, I'd love to, you know, whenever I can do, I, I'd love to to see if we can help you get some more money for the film because, you know, I love that you're still... You're, there's not a lot of filmmakers who are still doing it this way. And it's. I think it's great that you're just going, I want to do it my way, so I'll put the money together and fi-. Like, Brian uses this that way. You know, Brian, mm-hmm. like... He had just put it together however he asked you to get the film done.
0: Damn the torpedoes. That's right. Full speed ahead.
2: Yeah, that's right. And I think that's like, uh, that's the best way to do it. If you can, it's hard. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like, I mean, Bloody Bridget was a tight schedule, but I had a a committed crew. I had a great cast and bang, we did it. We did it. Was Brian there like, for the shoot? We actually shot some of it at his house. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Brian's amazing. He's so generous. Right, he, he let you shoot at his generous. house.
2: Yeah. And he knows better. At his house. <laughs>
0: yeah. the, the, although it was problematic because he and our other friend John Penny were drinking fine wine, and I can't drink while I direct. No. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I can I can understand that. Yeah. I'm gonna be focused. Yeah, right. Razor sharp, like on it. Whip. Wait, but you know it's you have those days where like especially when you're making independent films where you're like you know you're up against the clock so heavily and it's such a a race to the finish line that you really do like you can't afford to waste a minute
0: no no it's it's kind of like boxing you you know like uh You you know you don't know what's coming next and you have to roll with the punches and improvise
2: right do you enjoy that part of being a film director do you like sort of the, the 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 sort of adrenaline rush of like, okay, you've got you know some crazy schedule, or do you prefer like you know when you have the time to do all that little finessing and all the little detail oriented work? No,
0: I would rather I had the time,
2: but I right. don't. Yeah. But do you <laughs> think yes, I, do you think sometimes necessity is the mother of invention when you're making a movie?
0: No. No. <laughs>
2: well, I, I don't know.
0: I, I I don't know. I don't know. It's uh I, I, I always wish I had more time, more days but I've been blessed with great casts and great crews. Uh, Howard Wexler, a DP I've worked with for 25 years. So we just know how to roll together.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, it's Howard Wexler, what, he, doesn't he do a lot of this stuff for Charlie Band?
0: Yeah. He's a great DP. He's an amazing DP.
2: Yeah. He makes films that you can tell had very little money. look like they were made for a lot more money.
0: As do mine. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, I think we're all done here. Thank you so much for coming on and chatting about your work, Richard. And I hope you'll come on again soon and tell us about all your projects that are coming up.
0: Hope to see you in Los Angeles. Yeah, looking, at my barbecue.
2: I'm looking forward to it. I'll have. To, I'll bring some Johnny Walker. Here we go. <laughs> Dignity for the
1: human race, it's like getting a leather boot in the face. It's an insult that no one should ever have to take from the man who shouts out a command for respect and compliance. Never enough of that energy and it's only acceptable answer And it's never enough and it feels like it's going to be tough Deficit and corrupted like an energy without a soul intervention with every intention of doing Me to it's not like me to feel this way, feel this way, it's not Too.
3: You've been listening to Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts with host and filmmaker Kevin Lane. Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts was created by Kevin Lane, produced by Jason Hill, and co produced by Felipe Ojeda. The Spill Your Guts theme and in incidental music was created by composer Mike Haddon. Original artwork and design elements generously produced by Matthew Terrien. Spill Your Guts is only made possible by the support of listeners like you. And the most important thing you can do to ensure that these amazing interviews keep coming is to simply get the word out. You can find us on Facebook by searching Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts, Instagram at, all one word, Spill Your Guts underscore podcast, and Twitter at Spill Your Guts underscore one, as in the number one. Post. Comment, share, like. But don't forget that good old-fashioned word of mouth still goes a long way. The best way you can support what we do is to just tell people about us. Friends, family, co-workers, whomever. Anyone with a pair of ears and a taste for guts. This has been Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts. Thanks for listening.